All right, for those of you who have been here uh, numerous times, you know that your Bibles might be falling open to Philippians at this point. We are in chapter 4, just the first three verses of Philippians 4. And as I said, I I continue to encourage you to read through or listen through the book during the week. Uh, As we take small chunks, it's always good to have the context of the book uh, in mind as we go through it. Um, So, hear God's word for you today. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of, the li- book of life. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, speak to us as we come to you by the truth of your holy word. Strengthen and guide us this morning. Fill me with your spirit that I would proclaim your truth clearly and that all of our hearts and minds would be deeply affected by your word and your spirit this morning. For your glory and for our good and joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When our family lived in Gainesville, in Florida, there were some remnants of the South still in Gainesville. Many people would say it's not the South, um, but th- there, there were definitely the leftovers of the South in that area. I remember hearing for the first time the phrase, might could. I didn't know what that, it's like, it's, I don't know if that's like a double subjunctive or, or something along those lines, like, I don't know what that exactly means in that realm. You know, you'd ask somebody if they could, if they would come over later. Well, I might could do that. Oh, okay, okay, I don't, I don't know if I'll see you or not, but, um, so there were phrases like that. I remember another phrase on a slightly different level. The phrase was like this. Somebody would start a conversation, they go, I don't mean to be ugly, but... And then they'd proceed to be fairly ugly with you um, in the sense of either gossip or saying something straight to your face. And I think about that kind of phrase and how, how much it was lacking in tact. Um, you know, when you think about tact, tact is this keen sense of what to do or say in certain situations, and uh, really in order to, to keep up good relations or to, to work at avoiding offense. And we've all been on the receiving end of some tactless language in our lives. We've probably, I'm sure we've all doled it out as well. I talked with the Godwins this week about uh, some less than tactful things that have been said to them as parents of a large family. Uh, and, and it's not that these statements are, are necessarily rude or offensive. They, they simply display a lack of that keen sense of what to say. And, and the first one I've actually heard myself when said I had four kids and somebody responds, goes, you do know how that happens, right? Godwins have also received some other comments, questions like, are those all yours? Wow, your hands must be really full. You all must be saints, Better you than me. Or, you know, the good one as they pull up in their van. Do you all run a daycare? And then there's a bit more one that's this may be borderline offensive. 
which ones are your real kids? You know, and obviously sometimes they're honest questions. They're just honest questions, but you're not really sure how to ask them. Other times it's a really bad way to try and sneak in or cover up something that should never have been said in the first place. But, but I think we would all agree at this that tact is actually fairly important. When you possess that, that, that keen ability to know how and what to say, it can be very helpful in a lot of situations. And the Apostle Paul possessed that ability. It helped that he was also spirit-filled and inspired to write the words that we have before us, but he had that keen ability as well. And we see this tact in our text today as he wraps up one section and, and bridges into the next. He also he has this masterful ability, and, he's, and we'll see it, to, to call out two people in the church in a public letter. Okay, remember, this wasn't just read by Yuri and Sintiki. This was a public letter. This is a skill. It's, it's a pastoral um, uh, master class in diplomacy and care. It needed to occur for him to be able to shepherd the church well. In this text, we're going to come to a familiar command, stand firm in the Lord. We've heard that before, and then we'll have another, agree in the Lord, agree in the Lord, and attached to that agree in the Lord is a call to help, a call to help with it. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. It's a short text, but it's important. It's important as Paul gets into what feels really like more, more, more practical fulfilling of the command from 127. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So we start off with verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So therefore, again, we, we say this over and over again, but you see the therefore, and you, you, want, you, you have to look back. You see what has been written. It's telling you because of all of this, in light of what preceded, and so the question is, what did precede this therefore? Well, in many ways, you can, you can go back all the way through the text, but really back to 127, and you see this call to follow Christ's example, a call to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, a call to hold fast to the word of life as you live as blameless and innocent children. There's a warning to watch out for those who espouse self-justification and teach that. There's a call to lose everything for the sake of knowing Christ. A call to continue to press on after Christ, on and on. A call to imitate Paul and those who follow the pattern of the gospel. And a call to expect and long for the return of Christ as a citizen of another kingdom. This word points us to all those things. All that basis and everything that he said, but it also is movement into further exhortation. It's, it functions in many ways as a bridge between one section of exhortation to another. And from this, therefore, Paul moves into some strong language. Now, it's not strong in the sense of harsh at all. It's actually strong in the sense of the sentiment which it conveys. Paul's addressing all the saints in Philippi. They are his brethren, his brothers and sisters in Christ. They've all been adopted into the family of God by the free grace of God through the work of Christ on the cross to deal with their sins. And so separations that were formerly there, Jew and Gentile, 
male and female, and other of those things in Christ, they're torn down. But it isn't merely that conflicts and dissent and disunity and strife and the like are torn down, but that deep and intense relationship has been formed in Christ. There's a depth there. The, the union a believer has with another, with another believer is of even greater significance than blood relations. This is why one commentator wrote that the division of Christians is the sin of fratricide. It's the sin of killing your family. When we're divided as those united by the blood of Christ, that's a significant issue. So being called brethren, folks, is consequential. (laughs) It's very consequential. And and then Paul goes on and he uses this term twice, beloved. Now, we don't actually see beloved twice in the ESV. In the NAS, it's laid out more clearly. Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, that idea of the first beloved that you heard in the NAS is there with the ESV of whom I love. They just smooth it out a little bit, make it kind of flow a little bit better. But the point is there that he feels a very strong affection towards the church. He deeply loves them. It's, it's tender. It's, it's deep-seated. And you can hear the depth of that love in that he states that he longs for them as well. Now, we read something of that uh, similar sentiment earlier in the letter in Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you. I long for you. I I want to be with you with the affection of Christ. And so, one of the things that's here is there is an implicit rebuke for us for our rather indifferent affections toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, another insightful comment. One says, "We, we have a long way to go before we are feeling the emotions of Christ toward each other as Paul was. We who so easily dismiss from our reckoning those whom God has accepted and reconciled and who so lightly offend those for whom Christ died. We so lightly offend brothers and sisters in Christ. doesn't mean that the offense was light, but we do it so easily. If we have the same affections and feelings as Paul, I think we would begin to see more and more how, well, not good division is for the body of Christ. You know, if you had no affection for your arm and decided, I'm just going to cut it off, that's not good. (laughs) You don't do that to your body. Well, then Paul goes on. He's called him beloved. He longs for them. Then he says that my joy and crown. My joy and crown. And he's written about this elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 2. He wrote, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, that, that text speaks more of the future aspect of this joy and crown than, than being so for Paul at the coming of the Lord. They're, they're evidence in many ways. And this is going to be true of the Philippians as well, but his language in our text is in the present. They are currently his joy 
and crown. They're not simply the hope of future joy, but they are presently his delight and joy. They are his crown. The idea here, I I believe, is that they are a source of godly pride for him. In their continued faithfulness, they represent the gracious victory of God through his labors in the gospel. Folks, that's the heart a pastor would want. That's the heart fellow believers would want for each other is to long for other believers, to have them, see them as a joy and crown as part of your family, that you long for them. You know, we find this in in chapter 2 as well, chapter 2.16, but I'm going to start reading in 2.14. Paul wrote, "'Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world.'" holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He wants them to to continue to grow, to hold fast to Christ, so that it's, it's proven that his labors in the gospel were not in vain, that they weren't in vain, that they were for a purpose, that the people continue to walk with Christ. Folks, in so many ways, this is what the church is to look like. This is the the, the affection that you should feel as you walk into the church, as you, as you see another believer in Christ at the grocery store or out and about, you feel an affection, a longing for them because they're, they're your family. And I know some of us might have difficult families, but that doesn't take away from the truth of what family is to be like and how we've been united in Christ. And I think in many ways, this is why Paul continues to issue this command, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He continues to call them that. Stand firm, though. Again, this refers back to 127. What what does it really mean to stand firm? You know, well, let's think about what the opposite of standing firm would be. It would be being knocked over easily, right? Knocked off your foundation and turning away from the truth of Christ upon which everything stands. And there are a lot of things in our lives today that draw us away, that are there to to knock us off of that foundation. We have things coming at us from all directions. I actually saw a a video this week of uh, a guy training he was physically training, and he was running on a high-speed treadmill. So his legs are going like crazy, and there are guys next to him on either side with medicine balls, and they're hitting him in the shoulder with the medicine balls, side by side. So the guy gets knocked, and he grabs the thing and gets going. And it's an insane workout, for one, but as he's getting knocked, as he continues to stand firm, guess what he's doing? He's getting stronger. His core is getting stronger. He's he's able to stand firm. We're to continue to stand firm. We are getting hit from every side, but if we just get knocked down and we never get back up, or, you know, we need to learn to stand firm, stand firm on the truth. We have to know the truth. And honestly, you're going to get knocked down, and those two guys on the side are there to help you up, to help you stand up again, to stand firm. And so as we continue to stand, as we hold stable, we actually become stronger. 
you know, as, I, as I think back through the previous letters, really from 127 through where we're at now, the, the, the idea of standing firm that Paul laid out was, was some kind of high-level stuff. Okay, it's, it's kind of up here a little bit. Stuff like, count all things as loss. Okay. Okay, and I, and I know we walked through that, but it, it, it sounds great, but what does that look like practically? How do we do that in the day-to-day? I can say in my head, yes, I count all things as loss, but in the day-to-day, how does that, how does that work? How does, that, how, how does one consistently do that? It's hard to make it concrete, And what Paul is moving towards now, I think, is the more concrete of how to stand firm, the practical outworking of all the things he's already written. And it's really a pretty masterful, uh, it's, it's a masterclass how Paul has laid the foundations, and now he's saying, this is how you really do stand firm. I've given you kind of the the theology now. I had one professor in in seminary say, now we're theologizing. We're turning that into a verb and learning how to do it in the day-to-day. We've got the foundation. Here's how to do it. This is how you live the life that reflects the truth of the gospel of grace in the day-to-day. Because as we move into verses 2 and 3 and beyond into chapter 4, and we consider what the church is to look like and what he's called us to, what is true of the body of Christ, how it's to act, quite simply... As we see that, one of the first things we see here is that division among the body of Christ scandalizes the work of Christ. That's actually the first thing he really calls out here, is that division in the body of Christ. So as we look at it, the therefore to start 4.1 is Paul's way of gathering together all the truths that he's previously expounded, and, and, and he's pounding them down as, as the foundation for his further exhortation and this, this entreaty that we are about to come to. And so the commands that we're going to find in chapter 4 are that more practical way of, to, follow, um, to follow Paul to strain forward after the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And not just individually, but to do it together. To do it together. So look at verses 2 and 3. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, as I've said before, Paul is showing tremendous skill here. He's embarking on a pretty touchy subject. (laughs) He is dealing with a difficult situation. There are very few people, and I'm not really sure I know of any, who actually look forward to confrontation. Even if it's through a letter, they don't really look forward to it. People are okay with it. We you know, we know it's necessary. We know it has to happen. It doesn't mean it's not a, a challenging thing to do. And so as we look at this, though, one of our first questions is, who are these women? Who are these women and what is going on? Why is he calling out Yodia and Syntyche in this time? Well, honestly, we don't know a great deal about either aspect. However, I think there's some things we can deduce pretty strongly, uh, come to some fairly strong conclusions. One, these women were co-laborers with Paul. They were co-laborers with him when he was in Philippi. They were vital as they labored side by side with me in the gospel, he wrote. This is, this is what he calls all believers to in 127, that we should stand firm, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving side by side in the work of the gospel. This is one of the central tasks of the church, 
laboring in that, proclaiming the gospel to all the nations. Another thing I think we can deduce is that these co-laborers were pretty influential figures in the life of the church. Maybe, maybe one of them hosted the church in our house. We, we, we don't know. Now, granted, Paul taught and believed that when there was strife anywhere in the body, it affected the whole church. But to call out these women in a letter read publicly to the entire church meant that what was going on was deeply affecting the life of the church. This would not have been a surprise to call them out. The people in the church would have known that something was down between Euodia and Syntyche. And and even though that we we can say that we know from the testimony of Scripture that these women weren't elders or deacons, they were, we we, we can't minimize the the influence and the respect uh, and and the the love that Paul had for them, that they were co-laborers. He speaks very strongly of these women in a very short period of time. And so there's division among the laborers. And Alec Moitier wrote something that I, I've actually been pondering the this, this scope of it for days. He wrote, Where there is agreement as to what the gospel is and what ought to be done with it, there is no room for personal disagreement. The one ought to exclude the other. Very often, of course, as at Philippi, it does not, but it ought to. To agree on the gospel is the most fundamental form of unity. It involves a unity of mind and heart as to the doctrine and personal experience of salvation. To agree on what the gospel demands in its proclamation to the world is to cement unity by common action. The singleness of the task ought to be reflected in the singleness of the workers. Do we believe that the task we are called to, that it supersedes other issues? Do we believe that the gospel supersedes personal preferences? The last two and a half years has been some of the toughest for any pastor because there was a whole lot of personal preference that superseded the gospel. Now, I want to say thank you that I did not feel that very much in this church. So I want to thank you for that. Because I know others who did. And people just up and left because they didn't like how Either you did politically, you said too much, you said too little, you said too much about masks, you wore the wrong mask, you did the wrong thing with masks, you didn't believe COVID was real, you believed COVID was too real, on and on and on. And so I want to thank you for not making that so, it's not saying it wasn't hard, because it was just a hard time. But the question is, are, are we going to let the gospel supersede personal preference. Paul did. And he entreated the people. He he pled, he encouraged, he appealed to these women to agree in the Lord. 
I think here's where some more of his masterful tact shows up, because he doesn't write, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche. Or he doesn't write, I entreat Syntyche and Euodia. He actually uses the word entreat twice. He says, I entreat Euodia, and guess what? I entreat Syntyche too. I urge, I, I plead with, I appeal to both of these women. There's no sense in which it could be assumed that he's taking sides in this issue. They are both off base, and they need to mature and learn to agree in the Lord. And that word entreat is another very strong word. Paul uses it a good bit in his letters, a couple places, 2 Corinthians 2.80, he writes, So I beg you, same word, to reaffirm your love for him. In 2 Corinthians 6, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, urge you, I plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It sounds like he's dealt with this before. Gentleness, humility, eager to maintain what? The unity of personal preferences in the bond of war. No, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's heartfelt. There's, there's almost a sense in, in which he's, he's calling these two women to his side and saying, okay, listen up. This is really important. You need to put aside your personal differences for the sake of the gospel. There is something drastically more important in this life than this squabble. And it's tearing apart the church. And we don't know what this conflict was. We don't know what the root cause of it was. We simply know that it was affecting the church. And Paul believed it was a big enough issue to call out the church in this manner. And so he called for them, agree in the Lord. He wanted them to, to be of the same mind. We've looked at that word before, to, to think as one, to live harmoniously with each other. He wants them to have the same goal and be intent on it, the goal of the gospel and the glory of God. And having that goal front and center, pressing on and straining forward, counting all other things as lost, that would rectify nearly every dispute in our lives. If we were focused on the glory of God, pressing forward with humility and with grace, it would deal with a lot of things we deal with. And this obviously builds well on the call that we read in 2.2, where Paul wrote, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. It's the same basic language, but now given a much more practical example. So that general call, that general call to be of the same mind, it, it laid the stage, it, it set forth, it rolled out the carpet in many ways for him to give this specific call and specific rebuke to these two women. They were dis disrupting the unity of the church, and he calls them to agree in the Lord. But not only that section of chapter 2, but I believe his pointing them to Christ is just as significant, if not more so. 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, think, think about the union that you have with Christ, that you have the mind of Christ as a believer. You don't have to continue to think after your fleshly ways. You can think with the mind of Christ as one in Christ. The Spirit will work that. 
So he says that who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If we took the form of servant, if we, if we served one another, these issues would also start to fade away. Paul is very practically laying out the importance of Christ-likeness and humility, thinking the thoughts of God. That's the point of the phrase, in the Lord. This isn't merely coming together in, in some truce, shaking hands and going, well, we just won't talk about this anymore. But it's growing in maturity where they actually see things the same. They come to understand their own sin and the issue. They confess and repent, and then they pursue further obedience and further labors together in the gospel. Folks, I've experienced this in ministry. When I was in campus ministry, there were people I didn't see eye to eye with. And I remember a guy that trained me. He's like, Chad, how often do you pray for her? Oops. And so I started praying, and we started to, one, my affection for her grew as a sister in Christ. Because I was letting my personal petty preferences get in the way. We're called to agree. And that, that points to the fact that in many ways in this text, this dispute seemed to be one that, at least at the point of writing, it was not going to be solved just by these two women. So Paul calls on the true companion, help these women, just like my friend helped me. He said, true companion, help these women. Now, again, we honestly have no idea who true companion is. <laughs> Um, it just, it's not like it comes out of nowhere. It, it could be Timothy. It could be Epaphroditus. It could actually be someone named Synzygus. That's how that word companion would be transliterated. Some even suggested it was Paul's wife. It's that word used sometimes of, of a wife. Another suggestion, though, is that it's a generic term for the church, for those in the church there to, to, to show themselves as true companions, as true partners, as yoke fellows in the gospel, and to give aid and help to these women in reconciling their dispute. And personally, I favor that suggestion. I think that's where Paul was going. The reality is this, as, as Christians, folks, listen, as Christians, none of us can be indifferent to the needs of other believers. None of us can be indifferent to the sin of other believers and to their needs. That there is a need means there is a call to come to aid and help. It's not a call to gossip in a prayer request about somebody else. It's a call to give aid and help. And I think that there's a sense in which Paul is saying to the church, this is your duty as believers, as members of the body of Christ, to help, to, to partner in applying the gospel, to take this yoke upon yourselves, join with them in their struggle, and labor to see these women freed from their dispute. And we know this in so many ways. And in so many ways, we do this. When someone's sick or there's a new baby, we quickly come alongside and help out. This church is literally phenomenal at that. 
I felt it five years ago when I had an accident. Actually, my family felt it more than I did probably, but I, I knew it. People continue to feel that kind of help with meals or housework, but when there are problems, we, you know, when there's other problems, when maybe there's a sin issue or something going on that, that might be affecting the life at church, we back off and we're like, nope, that's not my place. I don't want to be nosy. I think that's what we're called to. If we see a brother or sister in sin, we go to them. We lovingly confront them. And we hope that they respond, and if they don't, we take another along. And if they don't respond to that, then we come to the elders. But we want to see that kind of love and care for one. We don't do it because we're like, ah, gotcha. But we do it because we're like, I love you. You are a brother and sister in Christ. If we don't do those things, the body becomes more and more dysfunctional. If you twist your ankle really bad and you just decide, I'm just going to keep running on it, things are going to expand and balloon, and you're going to lose the ability to walk on it. We've got to deal with those things. Folks, because the reality is, is we're all in a family. We're all, as believers, he even says, those whose names are written in the book of life. We're known to God. We are in His family. We're precious to Him. And He desires for His people to live in harmony and in unity, to, to prepare for life eternal in the kingdom of God. We're one in Christ. We're citizens of a different home. And we are to live as those citizens. The community of God's redeemed cannot verbally confess unity in Christ and live on earth in His church in disunity. You want to know why the world says you're a bunch of hypocrites? Because quite often we are. We confess one thing, or with our right hand we say we're doing this, and with our left hand we're doing something else. And we're all going to make mistakes. But the thing is, are we going to confess and repent? Are we going to help one another? Are we going to move towards holiness, pursuing, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? And so, Paul really gives a call to unity here in so many ways. Actively living in light of our union with Christ and with others in the body of Christ. Folks, our Lord gave His life to reconcile sinners, not just to the Father, but to each other. To each other. He deeply loves His people. The life and work of Christ is to affect all of our life. It's to affect the full life of the church. It's not, we, just, we don't just punch a ticket for heaven and say, oh, I'm good. It affects the whole life in the here and now. And we're called to a high standard. What was Christ? Love one another as I have loved you. Wow. Love one another as I have loved you. That's what it is to live a life worthy of the gospel, to live a life worthy of Christ, to humbly, in love, uh, the, the, the one who did that all humbly, in love, giving his life for sinners. We're to pursue the unity that Christ won for us.
we're to press forward and stand firm in our life together in the Lord for the glory of God and for the good of His people and His church, and really, in so many ways, too, for the good of our witness in the world as we live honestly and humbly as servants, deeply loving one another in all that we do and say. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for all that you've given us. And do come and strengthen us and guide us. Deeply work that love in us, the love of Christ. What a blessing it is to know you. May we long for others to know that blessing and long for those who are in Christ now to know the blessing of the family of God. Be at work in us for your good, for your glory, for our joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.